On RT Radio 1 now, it's time to join Owen McDevitt, Ken Early, Kieran Murphy and actor Gabriel Byrne on Second Captain Saturday. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning, you're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Owen, Murph and Ken with you for the next hour. Hi Murph, hi Ken. Hey there Owen, how's it going? Now I know how this is going to look. We invite a major Hollywood actor on just so he can spend the entire week watching his amazing movies and passing it off as work. And that's exactly how it is. Someone's got to do it. That's how it's gone now. Our guest this morning is one of the greats, star of Miller's Crossing, The Usual Suspects, Stigmata, so many more, not to mention his Golden Globe winning TV roles and stunning Broadway performances. Gabriel Byrne is on the show today and this makes me very excited indeed. My big biggest takeaway from watching Gabriel Byrne films all week guys I'm glad you asked here goes if you take some of the most memorable characters that he's played and mm-hmm. drop them straight into the managerial backroom teams of either Limerick or Galway tomorrow okay you can see that your your brain works in very strange <laughs> ways on but continue you would be guaranteed all art and glory for either county don't believe me sports psychologist key member of the background. Yeah, okay. That's easy. Dr. Paul Wesson, the psychotherapist played by Byrne in, in Treatment. Yeah, fine. He'd have the Limerick lad steal for the pressure of playing in a final for the first time. Right-hand man, you hear ask? Tommy Regan, Miller's Crossing. <laughs> Trusted advisor to a crime boss in <laughs> Prohibition-era America. Tommy tries to keep the peace between warring Italian and Irish mobs. Admittedly, with limited success, Ken, as almost everyone is dead by the end of the uh, film, but you learn more from your failures and your successes. Of course, I suppose. Win or learn, on. And lastly, skills coach. That would have to be... It's a tough one, this one. I've gone for D'Artagnan from The Man in the Iron Mask. If you can teach a bunch of musketeers how to protect King Louis XIV with swords, mm. surely you can teach Joe Canning how to sideline cut even more balls <laughs> off the bar with his hair. It seems like your week has kind of been like that moment when you wake up from a dream and you're not entirely sure what's real and what you've just dreamt. Yeah, it's been hurling in Gabriel Byrne all week, Murph. Yeah, yeah. Now they're all together G- in my mind. Gabriel Byrne's acting career started so slowly on, I found out this week, that... Within two years of The Reardons on RT television, he was starring in a TV miniseries about Richard Wagner alongside Sir John Gielgud, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Vanessa Redgrave and Richard Burton. <laughs> so uh, that's on YouTube, actually. You can, I've watched oh, yeah. a bit of that. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think that's what you call uh, paying your dues. Like, you have to wait two whole years before starring with four of the ten best British actors of all time, probably. If you've heard Gabriel Byrne being interviewed over the years, you'll know he's not afraid to speak his mind on various matters, particularly around religion and the Catholic Church. I'm sure he'll have some interesting things to say about the Pope's visit next weekend so we'll ask him about that we will of course also be giving him the opportunity to become the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person Murph what are the current standings please I could have been a contender I could have been somebody Well, 78 points is still the score to beat as we endeavour to find an answer to the question everyone's asking on just who the hell is our greatest non-sports person, sports person of this summer. Wrestling's Ashing B is still out in front on 78 points with Tommy Tiernan grimly hanging on to second. Bettering David Baddiel's 75 points would be good enough for a bronze medal as it stands. Uh, That must surely be the baseline requirement for Gabriel Byrne, a Hollywood superstar who doesn't usually have to put up with this nonsense. We look forward to dragging him down to our level this morning. (laughs) If you're on Twitter right now, you can tweet us at Second Captain's text 51551. Bit of music for you now, and then it's Gabriel Byrne right here on Second Captain Saturday.
That is James kicking things off on Second Captain Saturday with Laid from 1993. Our guest this morning has proved himself one of Ireland's most brilliant actors in a career spanning 40 years in which he's been showered with awards and critical acclaim. But is he also the greatest international footballer the Republic of Ireland never had? Today's the day we talk about the sporting endeavours of Gabriel Byrne who joins us from New York City. Gabriel, thank you so much for chatting to us. Oh, you're very welcome, yeah. Now, before you set off in your acting career... Did you harbour aspirations of being a sportsman? Well, I, I, I think at the time, you know, when I was growing up in Dublin, um, I had already played in four FA Cup finals mm-hmm. um, on the street where, where we lived. At that time, um, you know, kids played on the road. And every time, uh, you know, we had enough players, we, we, we would have... Um, an FA Cup final or a World Cup final. And sometimes, you know, Manchester United would beat Liverpool by 48 goals <laughs> to 23, you know, because there was no end, no end to the games, obviously. Uh, you know, it didn't make any difference whether cars or buses or bicycles were coming. It was very much jumpers for goalposts as opposed to organised yeah. football. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Jumpers for goalposts. And uh, later we kind of graduated to a field uh, be- behind uh, one of the factories and in uh, in walking so but um i think at that time the the aspiration the ambition uh, that i uh, among most of the kids that i knew was to be uh, a professional footballer that seemed to be the most exciting thing that you could do with your life and of course at that time there were examples of people you know, who had gone from Ireland to teams in major first division, second division teams in, in uh, Britain, people like Johnny Giles and Eamon Dunphy and Noel Cantwell, Tony Dunn, all those guys. Um, so there was a kind of uh, a real connection between first division English football and Dublin. And I think the height of uh, excitement uh, was... Uh, seeing some of these teams come to Ing- come to Dublin to play uh, friendly games, and it just kind of brought th- th- that incredibly uh, distant and inaccessible world of English professional football to Dublin. And um, for for me, as a teenager, football and and the movies were the, were, were the two things that took me out of at that time a kind of a grey, uh, featureless Dublin. You know, while you were playing and while you were at the movies, you were utterly out of the world that you, the mundane grey world that you lived in most of the time. You mentioned those teams, the Premier League, well, the first division teams that mm. came to visit them. Did you get to any of those games? Oh, yeah. I, I, I remember one particular game. At West Ham, West Ham United came to Dublin and they played... I think it was the Bohemians or Shamrock Rovers team at Dalymount Park, probably Bohemians because they were at Dalymount Park at the time. And I think one of the best goals I've ever seen, certainly the best goal I've ever seen live, was scored by um, a guy called John Sissons who, who, who played for West Ham. And he hit the ball on the volley from just inside the halfway line. And I think Mick Smith was the goalkeeper. But the ball went into the top, uh, the top uh, right-hand corner. It was the most amazing goal I'd ever seen. And so to watch those guys come out, and again, the way they moved, if you were used to seeing League of Ireland football every Sunday, which I was, because I was a big supporter of Shamrock Rovers, 
again the way they moved and the way they the way they passed the ball and their their level of fitness uh a lot of them were tan or tanned i remember and so they looked physically completely different to the yeah. league of ireland guys but it was exotic to see those teams you know run out onto the field uh you know at Taylormount park or at that time rovers ground in in uh, glenmalure i'm interested gabriel that you say or that that you kind of were contrasting the glamour of this world of like football and movies to the greyness of your surroundings. I mean, when did you, when did you wake up or to the idea that you, you found your your day to day environment in Dublin to be kind of a little bit bleak? Well, I think it was the contrast between the excitement of football and movies and what you were presented with as your as the possibilities in your life i mean i grew up at a time i don't know that it's different yes it is different now of course but the idea of a safe job you had to get a safe job you had to go to school get your internship get your leave and get a permanent safe job and that meant if you were lucky enough the civil service uh teaching um major companies like Guinness, they, they were the three top employers. And you, you could look down the, the kind of the road of your life and see, you know, where exactly you were going to be in 15 or 20 years time. Um, and e even at 15 and 16, that wasn't something that that, that incredibly, you know, I, I found exciting. Uh, so the idea, the unquestioned kind of glamour of, of being a professional footballer was something that uh, we aspire to. That or, or being a musician, I never thought about being an actor at that time. Yeah. There's a tremendous sense of theatre, I think, about, about football, and there still is. I mean, when you go into a football ground, the combination of people packed together produces its own kind of electricity and it's very emotional uh, to a great extent and you didn't experience that kind of emotion and excitement um, uh, or ordinarily. You haven't mentioned it at all so far. Am I to surmise that Gaelic football was not so much of a thing in your, uh, in your younger days? Oh, Gaelic football was absolutely, and and I, I think that Irish uh, hurling and, and, and Gaelic and Gaelic football are uh, an incredible uh, example to the rest of the world. Growing up, um, I, I um, geez, I sound like Methuselah, but I grew up <laughs> listening to football on the radio, uh, Gaelic football on the radio on Sunday afternoons. You know, the voice of Gaelic football at that time, which is uh, Michael O'Hare, and then later one of the most distinctive voices in um, you know, world broadcasting uh, was O'Hare and uh, Michal O'Murkatig. And everybody I knew was going around you know, imitating uh, Michal O'Murkatig. Everybody was uh, an impersonator. Well, 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 watch a goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Uh, there was an element of imagination involved when you were listening to the radio. You didn't know what those footballers looked like. You had no idea of... Um, but those guys brought brought the match alive through their through their voices, and uh, I can remember I can remember footballers from the uh, Irish footballers in the early sixties and the Kerry teams, the Dublin teams. So yeah, I'm a huge uh, you know Gaelic football supporter. 
Well, another institution of Irish life that featured heavily in your upbringing was the church, Gabriel. Um, I think it's fair to say you've had a difficult relationship with Catholicism. You've spoken in the past about being sexually abused in a Christian brother's school in Dublin. You then moved to England when you were 11 to study to become a priest and you suffered abuse in the seminary there too, which you described as more intense. And even though it didn't go on over a prolonged period of time, it did happen at a very vulnerable moment. Now, Pope Francis will be touching down in Dublin Airport pretty much exactly this time next Saturday morning. What are your own thoughts on the Pope's visit? Um, what are my thoughts on his visit? I was around for the last one. I don't know if you've ever seen footage of that when Pope John... No, what was his name? John Paul II. Yeah. Was he Paul? John Paul, Paul II, yeah. The guy who used to be wanted to be an actor at one stage and then got the biggest gig of his life by becoming the Pope with a change of costume three times a day and the best set decoration you could possibly get. So he went from being an actor to being Pope. That guy came over to Ireland and it's hard to believe now that Phoenix Park was actually jammed for that. But even at that time, I, I wasn't... I didn't buy into it, and I stayed in bed that day, um, a little flat in Ratmines at the time, and myself and my girlfriend stayed in bed as our own protest against the visit. I'd like to say that I have no problem with anybody who has a religion. If that's what you want to do, um, that's totally fine. I have no business interfering in that. But on the other hand, you have to be able to um, think about things for yourself. Um... I see him as a very good PR guy, a very good CEO for the Catholic Church. But until the Catholic Church recognizes certain things like um, the elevation of women to priestly duties, um, the abolition of celibacy for, 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 uh, for priests and, and for nuns, that to me is, is a, a gigantic offense to one of the most human aspirations, the desire for love and the desire for companionship, to take that away from somebody is to me profoundly unchristian. And it's not that Christ was down on the earth saying, okay, well, anybody who follows me has to be celibate. I think that was invented in the 12th to 13th century by some synod of bishops who wanted to protect church property. To me, that's a gross offense against uh, humanity. Um, until they recognize, you know, the, the, the issues of birth control, um, abortion, suicide, those things, and allow people to have their own, to make up their own minds, their own conscience about that. Until they fully recognize and hold accountable people who are responsible for the rape of, of children. I don't really buy into it, and I think it'll be certainly a major social event, a major religious event. But you know, you've got to you've got to step up and come up with something more than I am Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And our big thing is unchanging dogma. Um, if the church is to survive, it has to change. It has to embrace. Uh, women, homosexuals, um, 
and people who are outside the fold. How can you profess to follow somebody like Christ who was a Christian, whose whole idea was that all men are equal and that everybody has a soul, and then be discriminating towards people who you don't regard as being so-called normal? That, to me, is another offense against uh, against humanity. But what the Catholic Church does do, like other religions, it provides easy answers to the most complex of questions, and it prevents people from really thinking about what the nature of life and uh, the nature of our journey here is truly uh, about. I have no problem with people who who follow that, but um, and 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 have it as a way of life. And I envy people with blind faith, but it requires just as much faith to be an agnostic or an atheist. I mean, when you talked about about 1979 and and staying in bed the day the Pope was in a mass, I mean, there's one one point two five million people went to this mass in Park. I, I think they're expecting you know over half a million people to go to this one this time around but but there was kind of obviously much more sort of youthful energy around i mean everyone it was like a massive national event it was almost the majority of the people in the country who went to see the pope at some point so it was kind of all encompassing so i wonder uh when you think back to 1979 say what you said about about john paul the actor and the the set design or or the things that you've just said to us now would you have been able to say that in 1979, I mean, if you'd been talking to people in the pub, would you have been able to talk that way, or would people have started looking at you funny? Yeah, well, I um, I wasn't the the only one who didn't think that that was a circus, uh, a celebrity circus. Um, because when you look back at the footage of it, you, you've got one of the greatest hypocrites that ever walked the face of, you know, the, the you know, walked in the Catholic Church, a, a guy called Michael Cleary, who, who was a hypocrite, denouncing immorality from the altar, and yet at the same time was living a, a, a totally a bogus life as a, as a priest and had a son. Not that there's anything wrong with a priest having a son, but the fact that he was uh, anti-women, anti-living outside marriage. He introduced the Pope, and he was a dreadful singer, and I think he sang. And then there was another guy called Bishop Eamon Casey, um, who was also up there on the podium uh, with him, who was a guy who was also living a very conflicted life. Um, but I think that Catholicism was part of Irish culture at the time. In fact, it was a very powerful part of Irish culture, and that isn't the case anymore. Um, it'll be interesting to see who will show up there. And um, I think that somebody like Mary McAleese is a necessary voice against any kind of, you know, propaganda that might be coming from, from the other side. I want to see him stand up there and condemn and meet with, um, you know, the victims of, of, of child abuse and condemn the Catholic Church's part in, in that and not do what he did in Chile a couple of months ago, where he went there and, and, and sided with the guy who was accused of, um, of abuse against the victims and realized that that was a major uh, mistake. So if I was them, I would be using this as an excuse, to re- uh, as an opportunity to reach across the divide and welcome everybody into the church. And here in New York, you have a situation where you've got this guy Dolan, who's the Cardinal of New York, and then there's another guy in uh, in uh, in the Diocese of New Jersey. And the New Jersey guy 
welcomed in the nave of his church. He welcomed uh, LBGT uh, members of the church. And, and Dolan is still, you know, giving out kind of, um, you know, platitudes about we're all, you know, following the lead of the Pope carefully and and quietly, but when you see people, when you listen to people like Archbishop Martin and, and and those guys, there's a part of me that kind of feels, um, what's the word? Um, I, I feel a, I feel kind of sorry for them because I think that these were guys that were brought up in that time when the when the church seemed indestructible. Irish life and Irish culture was dominated by by the church, and everybody was uh, um, um, complicit in that. It was never really questioned, and now they've lost the last uh, two major uh, referendums. They must begin to look at themselves and say, "What is our role here? Who do we appeal to?" How do we capture that young market again? And I think maybe they're hoping that um, this guy coming over will be uh, somebody who will capture that, you know, youth marketing. But I really don't think so. I think young people have moved on. And I think that there very quickly will come a time when the church will lose its influence in education. That's another thing that has to go, that they have so much control over over education. Yeah, I mean, that's that's um, something that's being suggested at the moment. Like, say, for instance, 90% of the primary schools here uh, are still linked to the church. And so there's, yeah. there's talk that, you know, the Citizens' Assembly should should debate this and maybe we should, maybe this, this should be the next thing to happen. Do you think that religious people then uh, feel or ha- have any right to feel embattled by this? Because, you know, you mentioned the two referendums. Uh, there was obviously the marriage equality referendum. There was the repeal the eight. The church was on the losing side of big majorities in both referendums. But I guess if you were a Catholic in Ireland today, you might you might think, well, you know, what's next? You know, they're not going to stop until until all traces of the church have been have been wiped away. Um, that sounds the the way you've said that sounds like there's an aggressive kind of campaign to demolish the power of the church. I don't think there is. I think it's much more worrying from their point of view that people have just drifted away because of indifference. And that's much more concerning because how do you get back people who've moved on, who are not scared, uh, who who don't uh, fear hellfire and sin and uh, all that kind of stuff? But I think that if you follow the dogma or a series of dogmas throughout your life and then they are threatened, well, of course you're going to be anxious about it. Um, I feel sorry for people who have been... Uh, following, you know, the tenets of the Catholic Church all their lives and have believed with a simple faith and now find the world around them as they come into old age being totally, um, you know, uh, torn apart. And there must be a terrible sense of how do I keep my faith in um, in this kind of, um, th- this new world. So I do feel sorry for people like that, and I do feel sorry for the, the church. From the church's point, it's their own fault. Yeah. They have been rigorous in their in in their and unwilling to bend. And I, I think, as I said before, I think they really need to to address the realities of the world we live in, and stop bringing up things that were relevant 
50 or 60 or 100 years ago. It is it, it is quite unusual in, in, in history, really, to, to see a country where you had such a dominant religion and then in quite a short space of time, it's no longer... It's not long dominant. I think it's 22% of people in Ireland now say religion is very important in my life, whereas the international average is, is like over 50%. So this is, this is quite a strange thing. And what I wonder is, when you think about all of the energy that used to be poured into Catholicism here, like all the sort of faith and belief of, of so many people, where does that go now? It's not, it's not as though people's, you know, urge to kind of, believe in something or have faith in something has gone away but the thing that everybody used to kind of that, that that was sort of the official thing that everybody believed in it's it's not really a thing anymore so what where do you think all that energy goes well if you think about what the irish name for the church is um for chapel it's called talking uh, the, the the house of the people and and the role that the Catholic Church played, l l let's say removing the, the, the morality of how they dictated to, to their followers uh, about sin and, and, you know, sacraments and all that kind of stuff, they provided an incredibly powerful social structure, um, mass. Um, there used to be six or seven masses on a Sunday when you think about that. And, and and the weekdays were filled up with sodalities and novenas and benediction and confession and so forth. So it was very much a part of how people live their social lives. They met each other at the church. Um, um, there was all kinds of um, interaction between people in, in a social setting. So that's gone. Um, and people have now moved on into a different technological age at that time there was i mean there was the radio there was two television stations there was very little input coming from the outside and both the church and the state up to a certain time made sure that very little input was coming in books were banned edna o'brien's books were set on fire in her native village that's not long ago that's the kind of hold they had over the way people thought um now people have access to all kinds of information on the um, on the internet. I think that the disillusionment with the with with, with the church scandals uh, has rocked the Catholic Church in in Ireland. But I find on a personal level, I mean, I went to mass, I went to a seminary for for four and a half years, and I really believed. I believed in the the, the way a child believes in fairy tales, and it gave me a kind of security about about life. Um, but then I just stopped going. And I think that's happened on a societal level where you just think, actually, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to think like this anymore. Uh, there are alternatives. And to a great extent, I felt that I was brainwashed and inculcated with certain ideas about uh, morality and about society that I still find hard to shake, which is why I say that cultural and religious life in Ireland kind of went together. So now I still think I'll say to myself, Jesus, that's, where am I getting that from? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe there is something after this life. Maybe there is something in, you know, I think, you know, stop that. That's, it's there. I mean, between school and church, we were brainwashed up at a certain point. Are we in, uh, though, Gabriel, are we in a sort of transition phase now where there's a difficulty in replacing the 
I mean, what, what, what I think most people would agree are admirable Christian values, you know, love thy neighbor and that kind of stuff, do, do unto others, those sort of values. Is there an issue now where the Catholic Church has fallen so badly and so quickly, as we've been discussing, and nothing is necessary, there's not necessarily a framework to replace that, or is there, do, do you think, in, term, in terms of particularly young people? I, yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying, but I, I, I think that to just talk about the Catholic Church in relation to the societal changes that we're all seeing uh, is, is, is kind of limiting. The Catholic Church is part also of new developments in technology and, and, and thinking. And I agree with you, people are looking for something to really believe in. They're not finding it in politics. They're not finding it in um, religion. They might be finding it to a certain extent in sport or in uh, entertainment, but these are, to some extent, uh, diversions. I live in a country which is utterly divided, um, so far divided that uh, I went into a shop yesterday and there was a Make America Great hat sitting on the counter. And um, on it there was a, a badge of the Grateful Dead. And I looked at it and I said to the... I said to the girl behind the counter, I said, make America great hat. She said, oh, that's there as a kind of um, an artwork. Because everybody who comes in reacts to the hat and goes, oh, my God. So what we're living in is such a polarized uh, world here, fueled by relentless propaganda from the American media, the same American media that helped elect Donald Trump, even though it refuses to acknowledge its role in that. Because leading up to the election in 2017, it was wall-to-wall Trump coverage. Because as Les Moonves said at CBS, he said, Trump may be bad for America, but he's very good for CBS. And it's absolutely the truth. Trump sold papers, he sold television advertising and so he was there all the time on the liberal stations uh, and on the conservative stations so what you had was free publicity for this guy for a year uh, and um, if that same coverage had been accorded to Bernie Sanders in other words an alternative political view of the way society should be run we'd have a very different country today um, and what I think is People talk about the division between left and right, but in my opinion, it's not about the division between left and right. It's about the, it's it's about right and wrong, and we have to be thinking about what kind of a society we live in. What kind of a moral society do we want to have? Because all this stuff about Trump and his hair and his golfing and you know when people bringing out men, they're all diversions. Because while that's going on, what's Betsy DeVos doing at education? What's that fool Carson doing in housing? What's Perry and those other guys doing, you know, in in the environmental? All those things which are crucial to the kind of world that our children and grandchildren are going to have are never are not being talked about because the media is still obsessed with the soap opera of, of of trump and that's what it is it's the same addiction that people had to dallas and dynasty in the 70s with trump as jr what did he do what did he say tune in next week etc etc so um this relentless propaganda uh, that we mistake for the news um, has people, um, you know, 
utterly um, terrified on one hand, cynical on another, and hopeless on another. And we and this inability to rise above it and see this in a historical context uh, and see that it has happened before and that the road to Trump was laid long before Trump uh, you know, came on the scene. And it was laid as far back as people like Clinton um, you know, removing the Glass-Steagall Act by cozying up to Wall Street um, by uh, uh, by Bush and Obama. The road was already laid. So what we're trying to do is find our feet in this kind of a world. And um, we're looking, we've been disillusioned with religion. Um, we're terrified of the world that we live in. And we don't know where to look anymore. So it's no accident that spectacle, which sport often fulfills that function, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and movies and, and, and um, box sets and all that kind of stuff, replace, just as I was saying that we, we played football to escape the, the drabness and grayness of, 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 of a Dublin at that time. People are using spectacle and escape even through uh, the reportage of, 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 uh, political, of political events. Um, and what, there's much, of a less, much less of an emphasis now on the spiritual development of people. I don't mean religious, but the, in, but the interior life, not in the self-help, kind of a way but um to listen to one's inner spirit and one's inner soul and try to use that to 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 get one's footing and and to question things to question the church to question politics to question the media so that we 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 learn to think for ourselves and, and subsequently to feel for ourselves and it might actually be a good thing the collapse of institutions because it may bring people either to um to start thinking in relation to themselves or it could lead to a new kind of a new kind of fascism okay well we started with sport so we're going to take it back to sport to lighten <laughs> the mood we, a little bit how do we get, up, uh, do we get on to that <laughs> <laughs> who knows who knows but stay with us because after the break we're going to rank the sporting life of Gabriel Byrne tweet us at second captains you can text 51551 RTE Radio 1 second captain first captain whatever We've got an Irish acting legend on Second Captain Saturday this morning and there's been a massive reaction to Gabriel Byrne's thoughts on the Catholic Church. Uh, I think polarised is the best way to describe that reaction, as you can probably imagine. I've also got a bit more detail on the West Ham game that Gabriel attended in Dublin in the 1960s. There's a message here from Pat who says he was also at the match in Daily Mount when John Sissons scored his great folly. It was against Shamrock Rovers, according to Pat, who says it was a 5-all draw. (laughs) <laughs> 10 goal thriller in 1967 Jeff Hurst got a couple of goals a young Harry Redknapp was playing for West Ham and Mick Leach scored a few for Rovers so it seems like a bit of a cracker there Gabriel you've been describing how your love of football got your mind out of a fairly drab existence growing up in Dublin I heard you tell Roisin Ingle on her podcast about your dad who used to marvel that he could listen to fights all the way from Madison Square Garden such a glamorous thing was going on so far away and you could hear it on the radio would that have been a big part of things as well that you'd share that experience with him and listen to those fights oh yeah well of course you had to stay up to listen to the fights again it was the conjuring up of this exotic and accessible world that you would never ever come in contact with you know fights from madison square gardens live with crackling radio 
But that was at a time when radio was not too many people had uh, television. I think it added um, an extra dimension to your involvement in, in the event. And then Muhammad Ali came to Dublin in, I think, 1972 against a guy called Al Blue Lewis. And that was an amazing uh, event altogether. My mother used to work at um, St. James's Hospital and he came up there to to visit. And she talked about him walking through the wards and the effect that that had on the patients and the nurses and doctors. Years later, I remember, uh, I was at the um, the Academy Awards and there was a Vanity Fair party afterwards. And the guy who was taking the photographs for Vanity Fair said, listen, if you want your photograph taken with anybody, just give me a call. And, and I said, no, not really. I said, but Muhammad Ali is over there in the corner. I said, that's... If I could get a photograph with him, I'd be absolutely thrilled. He said, I'll give you the nod when, when I can do it. So um, he comes over to me and he says, come over now. He's talking to Sidney Poitier. And um, I said, Sidney Poitier and Muhammad Ali in the same photograph. <laughs> Fantastic. I went in be between them, said hello to uh, Muhammad, said hello to Sidney Poitier. I mean, what do you say to those guys? So the guy takes the photograph and he says, um, I'll get that to you. And I said to him, that was a dream come true for me. A Muhammad Ali fan, not just as a boxer, but as a pioneer of American civil rights. You know, an amazingly brave man who stood up against the establishment, uh, the real dangerous establishment, and risked his life. Because if they'd gotten rid of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they could just as easily have gotten rid of him. But anyway, um, so the guy says, I'll, I'll get that picture to you. And because it was so rushed and so hurried, when I finally got it in the envelope, I took it out and I looked at it. And right in front of Muhammad Ali and... Uh, Sydney Poitier were two people just crossing the camera oh, so there was a photograph of me with the elbow of Muhammad Ali oh, and the shoulder of Sydney Poitier oh, and <laughs> I was robbed of my big uh, of my big moment oh no but it, uh, yeah so Could, yeah, do you so even have the consolation of, of remembering any wise words that Ali imparted on you or was it, was it too quick for a proper conversation it was it was it was really it was really too quick but um you know, he, he just for a moment talked about, uh, you know, when he was in Dublin and what a great time he had there and how much he liked the Irish people. And then the guy took the photograph. Um, so um, so that was really memorable. And it's probably more memorable had the photograph turned out OK, as sometimes happens. <laughs> right. The fighter that the people are staying up late to watch these days is, well, funny enough, actually, not dissimilar to yourself, had a spell as an apprentice plumber and also grew up not a million miles away. You, you went to school in Crumlin, this young man. Grew up in Crumlin, Conor McGregor. What do you make of the McGregor phenomenon? Um, I'm, I'm kind of divided, really, in a way, um, in, in, my, uh, in, in my reaction to that. Um, I hugely admire his, his journey um, that he's made from Crumlin. Um, I'm not such a, a big fan of that kind of um, of that kind of sport, and um, I think that um, he, he's trying to wrestle with the enormity of, of of his fame. I think it's not easy for him to do it, but um, it's a remarkable a remarkable journey, and um, I, I was really hoping that 
you know, he would not, he would not go down after that incident in uh, New York because that could have more or less ended his career. Yeah, you said not that long ago, not in relation to McGregor, but the quote might apply, the fame doesn't necessarily change you, it changes everyone around you. When you're 24 and from Dublin and suddenly the entire world is telling you you're not that kid from Dublin anymore, holding on to your identity is tremendously important. So that's got to be a challenge for somebody who has gone from being completely unknown to being one of the most famous sportsmen on the planet in a really short space of time. Right. There's no way that you can just sit back and be totally zen about that. He he went from being, as you say, a plumber to being a world-famous sportsman. And more than sportsman now, personality, whatever you call it, celebrity, that cannot be easy. Maybe the biggest battle, the biggest fight that he has on his hands is, is that kind of, uh, you know, reconciliation of his own identity. I remember somebody describing fame as being like being inside a drum and people banging on it all the time. And it, it's hard to keep a sense of who you are at any level of uh, where your identity uh, it begins to change in the objective perspective of people around you. Gabriel, the end is drawing near here. You've already given us a comprehensive rundown of your sporting loves and achievements. Right. If you could narrow it down, can, just before we wrap... Can I tell you before yeah. I go what my, what my dream is? Well, your dream, the, go on, yeah. My, my daydream is? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Wembley Stadium, the World Cup final. There's 30 seconds to go. It's nil all. And for some reason, I'm playing in that game even at my age, and a ball comes over and the only way I can get to it is a scissors kick and there's four seconds left and that ball goes into the top right-hand corner. That is still to this day my most cherished dream and I have the consolation of knowing that will always be a dream it'll never happen but nonetheless exciting for that <laughs> well listen usually Gabriel we ask for an actual sporting highlight but if you're, if you're happy enough to give that to as go your with your dream, dream are you happy <laughs> yeah. or is there, is there anything in real life that strikes you as, as anything actually no no do you know what we'll just go with this let's go with the dream okay, yes. your work is done now Gabriel yes. it's now up to Murph here to crunch the numbers so hold on one second Kieran, would you please now rank this sporting life of Gabriel Byrne for the first time ever on the show minus an actual sporting highlight you don't I don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. All right, Gabriel, I want to put on record our thanks for talking to us today before I get to work here because there's no room for sentiment when it comes to the task I see here before me for I must cruelly rank your all-time sporting highlight or daydream uh, and identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality and then mark you out of 100, so out of 100 points. From the moment you saw Tony Sissons bang one in for West Ham from 40 John yards in daily. John, John Sissons, how could you forget? Ah, John your, uh, your love of sport is undoubted, but sport has not been kind to you. I mean, the heartbreaking tale of meeting Muhammad Ali and Sidney Poitier. It should be. I mean, it must be, really, your all-time sporting highlight were it not for the photographer to mess up the shot. But isn't that pretty much the perfect analogy for all of our sporting dreams? So near and yet so far and uh, as you describe uh, as you were a 24 time winner of the Walkinstown FA Cup final street football edition of the early 1960s the image that comes to mind of a sports person that sums up your sporting personality must surely be 
actual FA Cup winning captain from 1963, Noel Cantwell, uh, a great Irishman and, of course, Manchester United captain. So all in all, taking all of that into account, I'm going to give you 75 points, which has you level with David Baddiel in joint third place. So congratulations, Ah. Gabriel Byrne. This has been... Your sporting very, life. Very happy to be to be number three. Yes. for sure. Podium Gabriel, position. Gabriel, thank you so much. You've been absolutely brilliant with your time. We really appreciate it and ho- hope you're keeping well. Round of applause, please, for Gabriel Burke. Thanks. play anything else but respect by Aretha Franklin after the passing of the Queen of Soul this week Otis Redding sang the original of that song and apparently when Aretha Franklin's version was played to him for the first time he was pretty annoyed he knew she nailed it and remained angry about it for the rest of his days yeah he said he I, uh, well I read this week that he never performed it again once he heard Aretha yeah, Franklin's she's taken version. my song was apparently yeah. the quote uh, do, I, I know it's been tweeted a million times uh, but Aretha singing at the Kennedy Centre Honours for Carol King, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. You know one of these things where you see it tweeted so often you don't bother watching it at all? You need to watch all five and a half minutes of this clip because it is absolutely okay. sensational. We'll retweet it now. Uh, at Second Captains, Gabriel Byrne was our guest this morning and it's been the biggest reaction we've ever had to any of our chats on Second Captain Saturday. Unsurprisingly, a mix of opinions on what Gabriel has had to say about the papal visit this morning. Although mostly people are weighing in on his side of things. Certainly on Twitter, most believe that he hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of people contacting us by text this morning saying that his opinions are, and I quote, travesty in one case great analysis by Gabriel of the political sphere and context should speak to history and political students from Margaret and Cork a number of people go one step further and call for Gabriel Byrne for president and maybe 2025 we're talking about according to Patricia Daly did not turn on to listen to a highly selective immature preaching rant grow up from Jim and Bal Doyle Gabriel Byrne doesn't live in Ireland how dare he mock my church and the Pope Frank says that another one here saying Gabriel makes many brilliant and compassionate observations in the world we live in I could listen to forever but another listener says a depressing interview will never view his films again so that's a taste of some of what we're getting there who knew that Gabriel Byrne could pull off such an uncanny Michal O'Meary Hartig impression yeah, that's, that's my biggest takeaway from the conversation really <laughs> really really good yeah, yeah, top, yeah. you were impressed top, class, top drawer it's all and hurting final weekend and all the hype has been around the Limerick team's stubborn refusal mm. to get caught up in all the hype this all stems from comments, just for a bit of context here. Immediately after the semi-final win against Cork, their players, their management all came out and said, give us some space here, Limerick people. We know you love us. We know you want us to win the All-Ireland final. Best chance of that happening is journalists don't contact us and fans and family don't bother us too much mm. for tickets and that kind of stuff. How successful has this hype killing been? Well, the most hyped part of the entire building, of the entire build-up to the All-Ireland has been about the hype. <laughs> as Larry Ryan wrote in the Irish Examiner today, and that and that's basically it. I mean, the, uh, as you say, Shane Dowling, thirty seconds after the the final whistle, is like pleading with people, please don't come up and talk to me. His first answer, I was watching the interview back again today, it wasn't like towards the tail end. He yeah. said, "Yeah, thanks very much for the congratulations." Now, if I could just ask the living mm. people, but it seems completely, you know, the opposite of what 
qualifying for an All-Ireland final is supposed to be. I mean, I remember when Donegal qualified for the 2012 All-Ireland football final and Jim McGuinness said that it was the right, indeed the obligation <laughs> of the Donegal people to completely lose their minds for the three weeks between winning the semi-final and, and playing in the final and that the players would have to operate inside that but that, you know, people have... People can go as crazy as they like because this doesn't happen all that often. It's been 10 years since Limerick have been in a final, 45 since they won one. I mean... Well, John Kiley did say that. Now. John Kiley did say the fans should embrace it. Fans should enjoy it. Mm. The Limerick manager. Just please don't let that seep into the squad's preparations. Yeah. I don't know how you do that, though. I mean, the players do live in the county. Mm. I mean, they can't actually walk around in an actual fully functioning bubble that protects them from conversation and indeed just opening their eyes to see the landscape around them. I mean, but see, this is it. Like, the fans really do believe that they have a role to play in all this. You know, they're not like passive observers of the All-Ireland Final. They do actually feel like our job here is to not bother the players. And so we are, in our own small way, helping to win the All-Ireland uh, for Limerick like one of us goes to war we all go to war as someone who we mentioned to Gabriel Byrne might well say Ken how do you think the Limerick fans should approach this I think just mania is the correct approach pile it on ignore yeah. management pile it on I think so yeah and I think they'll win easily as well so. <laughs> oh really the I fans think, I think it's going to be easy on. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what like 10 points well I, d- I mean do I you think 10 or about not eight, eight. I just think it's going to be an easy victory mm. okay, I just Ken. one more tweet coming into me here which I get you know and it says great tune choice you have all the coils dancing around the kitchen here in Bellustown all the coils and it does the coils apparently there so thanks very much for that tweet that's pretty much it from us for today after all our chat about the Pope on this show there'll be no second captains Saturday next week to make way for the special programming around the Pope's visit so we'll talk to you again in two weeks time with Sharon Horgan in the meantime you can catch our daily shows on second captains world service including a look back at the All-Ireland final on Monday just get on to secondcaptains.com to listen to that Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced thanks to Kitty and Diane on research Caro Hare on sound Brendan O'Connor's up next. Thanks very much, Murph. Thanks again. Thank you all. Thank you Thanks for listening. Enjoy the All-Ireland. Second cap, first cap, whatever. They never got on those, those, those boys.